Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. A city gripped in fear as the body count grows. One, two, eight, twelve, seventeen, eighteen, twenty-one, twenty-eight, thirty. Many of the dead, young boys. All I can think about right now are my children and my son, John David. What was going through the minds of all of these parents when on that day their son didn't come home? I'm Nancy Grace. This is Crime Stories. Thank you for being with us here at Fox Nation and Sirius XM 111. A period of months drag on and on. No answers as to who was kidnapping and murdering little boys and young men across the city of Atlanta. With me, an all-star panel to make sense of what we know right now. But first of all, take a listen to this. It was a phrase uttered by a local television anchor that haunted parents in Atlanta's neighborhoods. It's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? 29 children and young adults were killed. The carnage became known as the Atlanta child murders. More than two dozen were killed or missing. Most of them children and male between the ages of 9 and 28 years old. One child vanished after another, never seen alive again. Their bodies found across Metro Atlanta, strangled, suffocated. The first two discovered on August 7, 1979. By August the following year, the bodies of seven more victims were found. Two teen boys were the first victims. 14-year-old Edward Hope Smith was missing for seven days. He was last seen at the Greenbrier skating rink. Alfred Evans, 13, had just graduated seventh grade. He was missing for three days after disappearing from East Lake Meadows Housing Project. Their bodies were found in a wooded area off Niski Lake Road, southwest of downtown Atlanta. The location was just two miles from where Smith was last seen. How did it all start? Take a listen to what went down in July, July 28th. To be exact, you were just hearing our friends at CrimeOnline.com and WXIA. Now listen to our friends at CBS. On July 28th, a woman was walking along this wooded road looking for aluminum cans to turn in for money when she approached this embankment. People often dump things from passing cars here. At the bottom, she saw a body, which had also presumably been dumped from a car the previous night. It was 14-year-old Edward Smith. He had left home eight days earlier to go to a skating rink. He had been shot to death. Nearby lay the body of his friend, 13-year-old Alfred Evans. He had disappeared on his way to the movies three days earlier. Police were unable to say how he was killed. With me, an all-star panel to make sense of what we know right now with the body count rising, people living in fear, not letting their children go outside for fear the children, especially the boys, would be snatched off the street. The district attorney's office was in a tumult with me High-profile lawyer joining me out of the Atlanta jurisdiction, Joseph J. Drillet, author of The Pursuit, 
of the Atlanta child killer, facts, fibers, and forensics on Amazon now. Now that's the title, Joseph Drolet, The Pursuit of the Atlanta Child Killer, Facts, Fibers, and Forensics. Before I go to the rest of our all-star panel, I want to go to Joseph Drolet first. Drolet, do you remember the first time you ever saw a dead body? Uh, yes, I do. When was it? It was uh, when I was with the district attorney's office uh, when I first started, and we went and watched an autopsy. Oh, the good old days at the morgue watching autopsies. The good old days watching autopsy and seeing, seeing who could make it through it. It's one thing for you or I to see a dead body because we're used to it now. I remember the first time I saw a dead body in my official capacity as an assistant DA along with you. And I will never forget it as long as I live. But for people in Atlanta to just look over and see uh, a little boy that goes missing from a skating rink. And there you look down and you see a dead body. That's a shock to a civilian. It was a shock, I think, Nancy, to everyone. And it, and it continued unabated for a long time to the point that it became frightening and terrifying, I think, for everybody in the Atlanta metropolitan area. And then somehow, Joseph J. Drolet, you ended up as one of the five very brave lawyers to take this on. Joining me, a longtime friend and colleague, former Deputy Chief of Police in the APD, Lou Archangeli. Lou, it's great to hear your voice again. I know you recall the fear and the terror under which everybody was living in Atlanta. Describe it for our listeners that were not there when it all started. Oh, it was it was horrible because of the uncertainty. You know, at one point there were five in November of that year, um there were five children missing at the same time, all of them between 10 and 14 years old. And, of course, the real tragedy is one of these children, Darren Glass, has never been found. His body is still missing. You know, I can't even imagine that, Lou Archangel. Every day, every night on the news, you see another child missing. You said five were between, did you say nine and 14? That, that was at one point. There were five children missing at the same time. At, but for, for months, there was four missing, three missing, and then ultimately... You know, the last one to be found was Nathaniel Cater was an adult. He was dumped in the river because you know, the, the perpetrator evolved. Evolved. Yeah. And that's very unusual. You know, uh, to Dr. Todd M. Barr, uh, pathologist joining us, he testified in the Sean Great serial killer case. Dr. Barr, thank you for being with us. People believe that serial killers never change their MO, their modus operandi, their method of operation. So when you see some little boys strangle dead and then another victim ends up in the water, the Chattahoochee to be exact, many people go, oh, that's not the same killer because there's a different MO. That's not true, Dr. Barr. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely not true. Uh I've worked on uh, a couple of serial killer cases and, um, you know, I, I think the term evolution is, a, is an appropriate term. Um, I've seen them go from, you know, uh, strangulation and, and they keep the same modus operandi 
to, uh, you know, uh, strangulation with, with the evolution to burning them in a car, that type of thing. So, uh, yeah, you can't just jump to conclusions if it's not the exact same mode of operation. Yeah, perfect example, uh, Joseph J. Drillet, uh, we had a then lawyer in our office, Henry Newkirk, that had been a cop in Florida during the Coyote killings. Remember Ted Bundy? Ted Bundy's M.O. changed drastically. He went from picking people up at the beach or in his Volkswagen to clubbing them dead in their sorority house. So that's a perfect example of how M.O.'s method of operation can change for serial killers, right? Nancy, I think this is Joseph Drolet. I think also the the profilers at the FBI said that, that uh, serial killers do, they change based on the circumstances. And in this case, of course, the changes, uh, including dropping bodies in the river, were because evidence was being found of fibers that could identify the killer. Uh, and suddenly bodies started showing up in the river without their clothes on. Wow. Joseph, will you say that again one more time about how the MO changed after it got out about the fibers? Right. The, the fibers started being noticed. And by the early spring uh, of, the, of the second year, uh, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation knew what they were looking for. They were looking for uh, a, a location that had a green carpet that had some sort of violet acetate fiber uh, on some some item and it had a dog, probably a German shepherd. That got out into the newspapers. This was in February, and from then forward, most of the victims ended up in the river. Uh, Jimmy Ray Payne was was uh, wearing only his shorts, red cotton shorts. Nathaniel Cater was naked. Guys, uh, the body count rises. Take a listen to our friends at Crime Online and CBS. Two more victims would be found that same year. Nine-year-old Yusuf Bell's body is discovered in an abandoned elementary school. His body had been stuffed in a crawl space. Bell was last seen getting into a car on October 21st. Not quite a month later, the body of 14-year-old Milton Harvey was found, discarded on a road in Fulton County. Harvey had actually gone missing before Bell. He was last seen on his bike September 4th, but his body wasn't discovered until November. In November, two more bodies were found. 14-year-old Milton Harvey was found on the 5th, police unable to say how he died, and three days later, 9-year-old Youssef Bell. He had been strangled. 1980 came and children continued to disappear and die. All were poor. Several disappeared from shopping centers, which they frequented in hopes of picking up some change by helping people with their bags. Not all, but most, were street kids from single parent or broken homes. All but two were boys, ages range from 7 to 16. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I want to go to Vern Smith, a special guest joining us, formerly Newsweek Atlanta Bureau Chief and National Correspondent, author of The Jones Men. Vern, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Nancy. The fact that the the children were taken uh, in various ways, some were riding their bikes, others were on the street, and that they were found in so many different places. One stuffed in a crawl space in an abandoned elementary school. Others 
in the water in the Chattahoochee. Others are tossed off by a road. That makes it even more difficult. What do you recall? You know, the, the, the thing that lingers uh, for me, you know, something that's been mentioned earlier is the um, what it what it felt like to, to be in a situation where there is a, an unknown terror uh, literally stalking the uh, community. And so that uh, the uh, sense of just panic and and regular citizens not trusting people that previously they had not thought anything uh, negative about it just kind of had this kind of paralyzing fear uh, of the unknown, which 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 I think is just something that you have to kind of experience to understand what that was like. You know, uh, Joseph Drolet, I wouldn't even let my children out the door with this going on. That's true. And, and most people kept their children home. And that's why I think the ages of the victims started going up because it was more and more difficult. That and a curfew that was imposed made it very, very difficult to, to find the younger children. Uh, so the ages of the victims started climbing uh, as the cases went on, and they increased in frequency. What do you recall about it? Uh, former Deputy Chief Police APD Lou Archangeli. Well, the terror extended far beyond Atlanta. I mean, people that I knew in Alabama were concerned and were bringing their children in. But even though there was never any evidence that the killings spread beyond metro Atlanta, but even, I mean, Paris, France had things in the newspaper, had articles in the newspaper about missing children. Children have a special place in our heart, and when they're victimized anywhere, it, it strikes fear everywhere. I'm just thinking back, Lou, about the witness that looks over and sees a dead little boy. Oh, I actually saw one of those victims in the morgue, and what struck me was he was so little and so skinny. I mean, it was it was hard to watch. Even as a homicide detective, it was hard to see the body of a, of a young child. What was going on amongst it, Atlanta homicide during all of this? Well, at, at first, they didn't recognize the pattern because everything was changing. We had victims that were shot, stabbed, undetermined, asphyxiated. You know, and so there was confusion at the start of the case. But ultimately, they, they figured out and the, the pattern that was similar was the age of the victims. And it was all children, up, you know, for, for the first year of this, all children. Take a listen to our friends at CBS. They have died in many ways, shot, stabbed, bludgeoned. But most all of the recent ones have been strangled or asphyxiated. In some cases, the bodies were laid out in full view on their backs with arms and legs extended. Others have been thrown down an embankment into a river under a building. There are things that suggest drugs, sexual deviation, or cult ritual. There are many theories, but nobody is in jail. The tension and the terror mounting throughout the city of Atlanta and beyond. And what you were hearing in the background there was funeral footage of one of these little boys. And I keep thinking about what uh, former Deputy Chief Lou Archangeli just said, is seeing the little boy's body, how tiny and skinny he was 
to Dr. Jory Crosin joining us, psychologist, uh, faculty, St. Leo University, and author of Operation SOS. Dr. Jory Crosin, thank you for being with us. Who in the world would stab a little boy or shoot a, a seven, eight, nine-year-old little boy? Well, you know, I always look at behavior, and we, we heard the term evolve. What I really see in uh, research shows, it's a maturation, okay? It starts out like you look at where the children were taken from, and that's kind of a predatory hunting style, okay? Uh, there's no force, you know, it's not like it's a blitz attack. There's got to be some means of an interaction and maybe even get the victim to willingly come with you to a certain point before you initiate the the process of killing them. To Joseph J. Drillet, uh former prosecutor and author of a brand new book, The Pursuit of the Atlanta Child Killer, Facts, Fibers, and Forensics. It's an incredible work, Joseph Drillet. It's on Amazon right now. Joseph were the boys sex assaulted before they were murdered? No, there was no evidence of that, although there was cer- certainly a sexual component. Take a listen to our friends at NBC. Aaron Jackson Jr. was among the youngest, only nine years old. Ruby Jeter was 14, Timothy Hill, 13, Patrick Baltazar, 11. For almost two years, the bodies have kept coming out of Atlanta's rivers and woods, and week after week, police speak of sorrow, but not a solution. At police task force headquarters, there are 27 faces on the wall, 26 murdered, one missing. The killer? There is a handful of sketches, no one the same, no one certain to be the person police want. Almost a year after the task force was set up, police can't answer who or why. They don't know how or where or even how many of the victims may have been killed by the same person. One investigator says even if the killer walked in the door and confessed, there is not enough evidence now to convict him. Lou Archangeli, uh, former deputy chief of police, APD, what? At that time, if the killer walked in and confessed, you guys didn't have enough to convict him? Oh, that's not true at all. <laughs> that was a perception in the public, and that was certainly reported, but Larry Peterson at the crime lab and the Fulton County medical examiners and others had found significant evidence. Evidence like what? They had dog hair. They had fibers. They had the unique Wellman trilobal carpet fiber that was very unique that was showing up on it, it eventually showed up on 20 of the victims. The same carpet fiber? Yes. Hold on. I'm going to circle back to Joseph Drolet on that. Speaking of fiber, listen to NBC. The killer seems to taunt police and read press clippings. After a well-publicized but futile search along a road in an outlying county, the next child strangled with a rope was dumped there. And when a suburban police official criticized Atlanta's investigation, a child choked to death was left just inside that official's county line. After a press report that police had found fibers on some of the bodies, six of the last seven victims have been dropped into rivers, all stripped to their undershorts or less, possibly to wash away evidence. Okay, Joseph Drolet. The fiber is what's linking all of these boy victims together. Nancy, it is significant that the Larry Peterson went to a number of the victims' homes and obtained fibers and, and did exclusionary evidence. You can't, you know, they never assumed 
anything. They, they wanted to know the source of the fibers, and they had to make sure that these fibers weren't in a common part of the victim's environment, that these fibers all came from the same environment as the perpetrator. You know, Lou Arcangeli, you just said something so important, because um, as you will remember, Joseph Drolet, when I tried cases, I would not only try to put together my case, but to anticipate what the other side was going to say and destroy it before they could even say it. And that's exactly what you're saying, Archangeli, that once this fiber connection, these very unique fibers were found on multiple victims, not all, but many of them. How many, Joseph, had the same fibers on them? Well, 15 had the Wellman fiber, uh, 21 had the violet acetate, and 18 had the dog hairs. But the beauty of this is Joe outlines this so well in the book. It's crystal clear how the fibers are tied together, how the crime lab collected them. How do you do that, Dr. Barr? How do you get fibers off a body? Yeah, I mean, they're na- you can't see them. They're invisible to the naked eye. Right, and we have these stereotactical um, uh microscopes that we look at the bodies with, if we're looking for certain types of trace evidence that you can actually zoom in and, and take a very close up look um, with these, these high powerful uh, microscopes and you can detect these fibers and then collect them and uh, preserve them. The fibers in this case, Nancy, were obvious enough uh, that Larry Peterson, as he went to scenes, he would see them in the hair and on the clothing uh, of the victims and and pull them off and place them on slides uh, to take back to the lab. So they, uh, and many of them, the, n- the number of fibers, you know, that were, it was obvious that wherever they were immediately prior to death, you know, the, this was the source of the fibers on them. They're carpet fibers. You said the violet fibers and the dog hair uh, showing up. Uh, this one on 21 victims, one on 18 victims can't be ignored. And as Lou Archangeli points out, investigators would then go to the victim's family home, take fibers from their carpet around their home, bedspreads and so forth to make sure these fibers weren't from the home to rule that out. Vern Smith joining us, former Newsweek Atlanta Bureau chief and national correspondent. When did you first find out? Do you remember finding out? the coincidence, and of course there is no coincidence in criminal law, that these same fibers were on multiple victims. Well, you know, the the local uh, newspaper, the, the AJC, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, first broke that story, but um, some of the um, forensic um, investigators privately were, were 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 saying that they were finding links in in the the, the later body bodies so um for much of 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 uh, 79 and 80 uh, the official police word was that um they didn't know whether they were all uh, whether we were whether we were looking for multiple killers or or single killer um and so for for a while we we were under that uh, assumption that um, they weren't connected. But 
that was really a stunning moment when, you know, it, it was revealed that there was, in fact, a connection. And, you know, another thing about the fibers, uh, based on what Vern Smith just says, Dr. Jory, we hear that as soon as it comes out, as it's let out, which I wish it hadn't been, that fibers were involved, suddenly the body start turning up naked. So this is a very cunning killer. Yeah, that's part of that maturation and changing of operation. Um, you know, he, he's learning as he's, pro- I guess, progressing is the word that, that I would use. But that's the maturation process in serial killers. Take a listen now. A big break in the case. Take a listen to our friends at Truth. The surveillance of Atlanta's bridges pays off. A policeman hears what could be a body hitting the water. According to the record in the case, um... Uh, 3 o'clock a.m. in the morning, Robert Campbell, who was a young police recruit under the bridge, heard a splash and then saw lights come on on a vehicle. And so the vehicle slowly began to move in a southerly direction across the bridge. Wayne Williams admits he was on the bridge that night. But he says he did not stop and did not throw anything into the river. When the police follow and stop him near the bridge, Williams cooperates fully. They questioned him some more, searched the car, and then they they let him go. Three days later, on May 24th, the body of Nathaniel Cater was found, less than a mile downstream from the Jackson Parkway Bridge. The oldest victim yet, 27, was found in the Chattahoochee River. With this discovery, the authorities decide that Wayne Williams is the prime suspect. You know, help me out here. Joseph Drolet, who has just come out with a book, who actually worked this case, a landmark case, one of the first times fiber evidence of this magnitude had been used in court of fiber evidence of this ilk. Joseph, so you've got Wayne Williams admitting he's on the bridge. The night a victim is thrown over the side of the bridge, a dead victim. Luckily, somebody, either you guys at the DA's office or you guys, Lou Archangeli at APD, had the brilliant idea to start surveilling bridges, and it paid off. This cop actually hears the splash. He's sitting there in the dark. He hears the splash, and then lights turn on, and there goes the car. And the cop sees it's Wayne Williams. I mean, he sees the car, doesn't he, Joseph? He he didn't see the car. He saw the lights and he radioed Freddie Jacobs, who was at the end of the bridge in the bushes. Freddie leaned out and said, there's a car. It's coming from a stop position right up against the rail and it's coming toward me. He watched that car then come toward him and make a U-turn in a gravel parking lot at the end of the bridge. Uh, where he was seen there by Officer Holden, who who was in a catch car, uh, and Holden pulls in behind him as he heads back north over the bridge. So he backtracked. He dropped the body, goes to the end of the bridge, turns around, and heads back the other way. Nancy, what's significant about the bridge was we all thought it was a mistake when Dr. Howard mentioned that he had fibers linking several of the victims. We thought, oh, my God, why would he release that? Well, as it turned out, it was that release that compelled Wayne Williams to dump Aaron Jackson under a bridge. Patrick Baltazar dumped under a bridge. But those two didn't even hit the water. They just landed on ground. Well, then he 
He, of course, matured, as the doctor said. Curtis Walker was found in South River. Jojo Bell in the South River. Dr. Howard, by releasing that fiber link, compelled the, the perpetrator, Wayne Williams, to start using bridges. And then the FBI came up with the idea of investing a huge amount of manpower to put four cops on every bridge um, along the Chattahoochee and South Rivers. And on the very last day of the surveillance is when Wayne Williams, because he was now using bridges, he was more concentrated. We could stake it out. And that's what led to his arrest on the, to his contact with police on the bridge. For those of you that worked intimately on the case, Lou Arcangeli, Joseph Drolet, Vern Smith, who covered it, what was being done to the little boys if they were not being sex assaulted what was happening, Joseph Drolet? They were being mostly strangled. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there was one one victim that got away, uh, a young man who was picked up by Wayne Williams in the middle of the night, breaking into newspaper boxes to steal the change. Uh, and Williams took this young man, drove him around, asked him various questions, then uh, asked him if he wanted to make some money, uh, asked him if he had money, reached over and touched his penis. Uh, and, and then William said, I, I need to get something out of the back of the car. And he went to, got out of the car and this young man got the heck out of there and ran and was able to testify at trial about that. Uh, Williams targeted these people. They were all vulnerable young people out on the street, many of them. And he, he, uh, told many, many people that these people shouldn't be on the streets. So I guess he thought he was doing the police a favor by getting kids off the street, by killing them? That's, he expressed sentiments, something along those lines. Uh, there were four or five witnesses at trial who testified about that. Uh, that, it, that he said exactly that kind of thing. Uh, but he would then, you know, would then... Uh, mostly strangle these young men and then dispose of their bodies. They never were found where, where they were killed. They were placed different places uh, along roadsides in certain positions. Uh, some laid out very, very carefully. Some had ritualistic little stab wounds on them. Uh, uh, a number of them, had, in addition to dying of asphyxia, had been struck in the head. So he may have subdued them at some point uh, prior to uh, uh, to killing them by, by asphyxia. Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I want to talk about Wayne Williams, and I want to talk about this fiber evidence, uh, Joseph Drolet. It's all laid out in your brand new book, a blockbuster hit, The Pursuit of the Atlanta Child Killer, Facts, Fibers, and Forensics. It's on Amazon right now. Joseph, question. After all the fibers that were detected on the bodies and on their clothing, when there was clothing on them, to where did the fibers relate? I mean, where did they connect? Where did they from where did they come? Well, the, 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 the carpet fiber was wall-to-wall carpet in the Williams home. Uh, when the police and Larry Peterson, the crime lab people, went with a search warrant on uh, June 3rd, they go to the home and they find a 
home that is wall to wall in this green fiber. English olive was the color of green. English what? English olive. So you still remember English olive? Yes, absolutely. And it's this unusual trilobal fiber with the short one short leg and two long legs. They, they go in Wayne Williams' bedroom, and there is a violet acetate bedspread, which is interwoven with green cotton fiber. And, of course, that's being found on the victims. They look in the backyard, and there's a German shepherd dog. Um, so they have found the source uh, of the fibers that they are finding on so many of the victims. Joseph, how do you believe the fibers got onto the victims? Did he actually bring them to his home? I don't think so. He could have, but it is more likely that, that like the witnesses that we had, that he lured them into his car. And the car, as, as he would track things from the house into the car, and his family, his mother and father, would track everything in the house, would track into the car. So what the, uh, what the crime lab people discovered was that the, on the floors of the, of the car, it was if you swept up what was in there, you would find fibers from all the different things in the house that would yield fibers. So bath mats and, and rugs and uh, carpets, uh, blankets, uh, all of that would be found in the cars. So they didn't have to actually be in the house, and most probably they weren't. Nancy, this is, this is the theory of transfer that your doctor guests can refer to. Every time there's an interaction, physical interaction, something's left and something's taken. And in this case, when Wayne Williams was smothering these children, I mean, there were over 600 fibers introduced to trial, nine different types. And ultimately, they even found human hairs on the body of Patrick Balthazar that were linked by DNA to Wayne Williams. But yet people still insist, there are people that insist, Wayne Williams is innocent. Take a listen to our cut for WXIA. Prosecutors ultimately tied Williams to the deaths of 22 victims through carpet fiber evidence and witnesses. Not everyone believed his guilt. There were doubters. I don't believe Wayne Williams did it. I really don't believe that he did it. In 2005, DeKalb County Police Chief Lewis Graham reopened five cases in his jurisdiction. But nothing to exonerate Williams came from it. To this day, Joseph J. Drolet, people insist Wayne Williams is innocent. Now, there were 30 murders, we believe. Williams was convicted on a handful of those. Um, there's a movement afoot to have evidence re-examined from the other victims. But my question to you now, Joseph, is what other evidence links Wayne Williams to many of the boys' murders? Well, there, there were a variety of things that linked. I mean, you had eyewitnesses of various kinds. And, and uh, of course, we presented 10 other murders uh, at the trial. So there were 12 murders actually proven at the trial. So you, you had that. that. Uh, there were victims who had uh, fibers from different cars that Wayne Williams drove. And this is in addition to the, to the constant fibers from the home, which were probably in the car, there were also the fibers from the car. And there were fibers from uh, 13 different 
cars, 13 different victims, should I say, had fibers from the cars. And as Williams would change cars, the fibers would change as they were found on the victims. Interesting. So all of this was leading back to Wayne Williams' home and his cars and a very, very unique carpet analysis and carpet fibers. Isn't it true, Joseph Drolet, that Wayne Williams injected himself in the media business, TV, radio, and he would somehow be the first stringer uh, on the scene of a crime getting video before any other TV crew would get there. Right, and he had he had scanning equipment in his car. He, a lot of people thought he was a police officer, and, and the first car that we linked to him was a Plymouth car that he had decked out as a police car uh, with a blue light, with police radio, scanner, the whole works. Um, so he knew what was going on, and... and Many people thought he was a police officer. He had a police jacket uh, that was discovered after the trial. Uh, and then he moved on to being uh, a TV person, uh, a cameraman, a stringer, as you said. Uh, and that put him at, at the scenes of, of things. Lou Archangeli, did any of the cops notice that this guy, Wayne Williams, who sometimes dressed up like a cop, kept showing up the first one on every crime scene, obviously because he knew about the crime scene before anybody else, but did anyone put that together? No, they didn't. He actually showed up on one of my crime scenes, but he worked for WSB. He would sell footage of fires and wrecks and homicide crime scenes to WSB TV. So he was a frequent, he was frequently present at crime scenes. And he had a police scanner. Who is this guy, Joseph Drolet? I know he's an only child. Both parents were teachers and they doted on him. I mean, they even set up his own radio station in the home. That's correct. And so he was very much uh, a a child who his parents would do anything for. And he was in in many ways controlling of his parents. And a lot of evidence of that uh, came out during the case that, that he ordered them around. In what way? Like what? What? How would he order the parents around? Uh, there, were, there was testimony at trial. He even yelled at them once and said, "You know, you better not come home and things like that," because uh, they wouldn't rent another car for him. Uh, there were evidence of him uh, assaulting his father. Uh, so there are a lot of things where they they created, you know, this child who. Who dominated them? Did they help cover up evidence? Do you think, Joseph? Oh, I, I, I certainly think they knew a great deal more than they let on. And uh, his mother, uh, uh, I think you could say, lied for him uh, uh, at different times, including at trial. His father had to know a great deal more uh, than he ever said, uh, and they they covered for Wayne completely. You know they. Uh, they, they tried to back up his story uh, about this Cheryl Johnson, this phantom woman that was never found that uh, he claimed he was out looking for uh, when he was when he was stopped on the bridge uh, or near the bridge, I should say. Was there a circumstance where the father was destroying evidence in the backyard? Yes. And uh uh, we don't know exactly what it was. There were photographs that were burned in the barbecue pit. Uh, black and white photographs. Uh, all that was left it was the remnants of them, and you couldn't tell actually what was in there. But they had done that 
apparently after Wayne Williams was stopped on the bridge and he went home, uh, and I think some of the neighbors had, had even said that there was something something burning out in the barbecue pit in the backyard. Joseph, what was it like sitting in that courtroom with our boss, Lewis Slayton, and a team, a brain trust, trying this case? Well, it was, it was a, a, something that was completely engrossing. Uh, you know, I, I could think of nothing else from the time I got involved in the case uh, until uh, the trial was over. And, of course, it has continued to to be something that has come up repeatedly over the last 40 years uh, uh, as evidence is looked into. It's, you know, it was reopened in 2005. There was DNA testing. Uh, there have been movies about it. Uh, and more recently, uh, former Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms had asked the police department and the DA's office to look into it again. They've been doing that for three years. Nothing has changed. There's nothing that would indicate Wayne Williams is, is not guilty. What about some claim that the Klan, I hate to even say the word, is involved? Yeah, that was another interesting development. Uh, uh, two years after the trial, uh, the director of the GBI uh, came to the office and said, there's something I got to tell you. Uh, during this investigation, we also investigated the Klan, and we did a separate investigation uh, in March and April, uh, uh, before Wayne Williams was ever even a suspect, and we had them under surveillance, and uh, we took samples of things, and we watched them, and and we couldn't find anything. There was no evidence the Klan was involved. You know what, Joseph? I guess you said thanks for telling me now. Uh, anyway. Right. Showed nothing. That became a big, a big story. You know, the, oh, the Klan, there was a Klan investigation and it was secret. Uh, it ended up, it was begun and concluded uh, with no evidence of Klan involvement before Wayne Williams ever became a suspect or was stopped on, the, uh, on or near the bridge. Okay, I've got a question, Joseph, that I, I want to clear up. Are there victims that were never officially proven connected to Williams? And do you support reanalyzing the evidence in those cases? Sure. And, I, and that's what uh, that's what a group has been doing, you know, with folks from the DA's office and, yeah. the, uh, I agree. and the Atlanta Police Department are looking at it. And we may find out Williams killed them, too. Or we may find out. He didn't. I'm all for the retesting of that evidence to find out, if we can now, who murdered those children and young men. When you look back on it, Joseph J. Drouet, what's your takeaway? I mean, obviously, it's haunted you to the point you wrote a book, The Pursuit of the Atlanta Child, Killer Facts, Fibers, and Forensics. Right. You know, it, it, it is something that has continued, you know, there continue to be people who are, are doubters and so forth. Uh, over the years, I've seen so many productions that have been done uh, that for the purpose of entertainment, they don't talk about the evidence. They talk about, you know, the mystery of the case. What mystery? He did it. Well, if you don't know about the evidence, you don't know that. And I've had so many people, and I think even in the uh, the uh, Daily Mail article that was done uh, two years ago, they interviewed various people, and a number of, of people who said, I don't think he did it, said, I'm not aware of what the evidence was. I've never seen all the evidence. 
And I found this with many of the mothers even, that they don't know what the evidence was. If they did, they would probably think differently. What is it, Lou Archangeli, about Wayne Williams that everyone wants to think he's innocent? He's not. Oh, Wayne Williams was a racist, child-molesting pedophile. He abused his parents. He's a despicable human being, and yet many people have rallied to his side because they don't know the facts, but they're so clearly laid out in Joe's book that after you've read uh, basically how a prosecutor works, how the the criminal justice system works, you'll understand the complexities of the case. It'll all come together. Wayne Williams is guilty, I think, of killing 28 people. That is exactly what I think, Lou. That is exactly what I think. Joseph Drolet, uh, this has become a mission of yours. Why? Well, I, after the trial, of course, I handled the appeal, and, uh, and other, other folks involved in the prosecution went elsewhere. Uh, so I ended up being the person who has been defending the case, uh, both in the Georgia Supreme Court and assisting uh, in regard to federal court, uh, in a state habeas corpus, uh, and every time something happens about the case, I get calls about it. So I've been, uh, you know, talking about this case and acting as sort of the, the spokesman for what happened uh, for 40 years. Uh, Joe, Joe, this is Vern. Um, one yes, question, sir. one question that I've wondered about um, over the years is despite the imposing forensic evidence, do you believe that there might have been a different outcome had Wayne Williams not taken the stand? No, I, I don't think I, I don't think him taking the stand did anything uh, because the evidence was all there. Uh, when he took the stand, what it did was dispel uh, the fact that that, uh, that that he could deny this with a straight face because he ended up being unable to stick to the story that he had in regard to, for example, what he was doing on the bridge. And that's, uh, he, he sort of melted down on the witness stand. Uh, you got to tell me about that, Joseph. Who put their client on the stand? Well, I, you know, the the defendant, I think, wanted to testify. Yeah, what can you do with that? When the defendant insists he's smarter than everybody else and insists yeah, he right. wants to take the stand, exactly, you can't stop him. Under the law, you've got to let him testify. What did he do on the stand, Joseph? Well, he did real, real well for the first part when he was being examined by Al Binder. He did real, real well. Oh, dear Lord in heaven. But... He then, we brought him back the next day because we weren't finished. And, and then what the FBI profilers had suggested was, if you keep confronting him with his lies, he will probably at some point blow up. And he did. And, and what, what made him blow up was he could not answer the question if he crossed the bridge going south toward his house, and he, and he said at trial, I, I crossed the bridge because I wanted to go home. Well, then he turns around at the end of the bridge and goes north up to Interstate 285. Well, then he, he tries to explain that by saying, oh, I it's quicker to go home by 285. And, of course, the question then is, 
well, then why did you go down and cross the bridge? And that one thing made him blow up? Yes, because he couldn't. He, he, he had come up with different versions uh, and painted himself into a corner. Do you have any doubt, Joseph, that Wayne Williams is guilty? No, I don't. I don't. Based on the evidence, uh, I think, you know, very clearly he killed, you know, 18 or so of them, probably 24. Others, you know, we just didn't have evidence. Some of the earlier cases, uh, there was nothing but skeletal remains, mm. uh, and evidence had been dispersed over a period of, of months and even up to a year. Uh, he may have killed some of those people. He may have killed Darren Glass, who is still missing. Well, your book, The Pursuit of the Atlanta Child Killer, Facts, Fibers, and Forensics on Amazon Now, is incredible. Gentlemen, thank you. Nancy Grace, Crime Stories, signing off. Goodbye, friend. Thank you.